This is a Federal News Network podcast. You don't have to work decades for the federal government to have an impact. That's one idea behind the Presidential Innovation Fellows Program operated by the General Services Administration. Now the program has a new director. Rebecca Lamadrid joins me now. Ms. Lamadrid, good to have you on. Thank you for having me, Tom. So tell us about this program. Review for us what a Presidential Innovation Fellow is, where they come from, how long they work, and so forth. Absolutely. The Presidential Innovation Fellows Program is also known as PIF, and it was established by the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy in 2012. And our mission continues to be the same as it was a decade ago. Our goal is to embed industry's brightest technologists, entrepreneurs, and innovators within federal agencies to improve the way the government builds, designs, and delivers its services for the public. And this program has allowed us to introduce more than 200 top innovators into government. The result, we have improved public services for hundreds of millions of Americans. And these fellows are mid to senior career level leaders, and they serve as advisors or what we like to call entrepreneurs in residence, and they champion government modernization. They do this by working on building innovation capabilities, tackling really hard problems alongside talented and forward-looking federal leaders. And and today, as you mentioned, we build on that mission from within the Technology Transformation Services, an organization inside the General Services Administration. And do these people tend to be IT types of people, or are they also business innovators, for example? Great question. They actually come from multiple disciplines. Actually, when we recruit our fellows, we focus on five key areas. One of them is software and cloud infrastructure. Product management is another one. Design and experience, data strategy and AI, and digital transformation and strategy. So it's not solely IT focused. Because I heard one agency executive just the other day at a conference say he really prefers the term business digital transformation as opposed to IT modernization because IT is only the enabler. So is that part of the idea here? That is certainly part of the idea. It is larger than IT. It is about the modernization of technologies, and it is also focused on people. And it's that these innovators that have all these different types of experiences can come and do this important work in federal government. And they can stay for one year or two years in general? Correct. We recruit them for a 12-month commitment, and they can stay longer than that, but we start with 12 years. 12 months. (laughs) 12 months. Well, I guess they could apply for a permanent job and then stay for a long time. Do any of them ever do that, by the way? They actually do. Some fellows have stayed in government. We have some of them that have become, the, for example, the chief technology officer at the VA or the chief data officer at the Department of Commerce, just to name a few, also the chief of people and culture at FDA. So they do stay, but the program is not necessarily designed for that. But because they build, you know, these really strong networks and gain really in-depth understanding of how the federal government works, they are really set up to become really strong candidates for more permanent jobs. And how many openings are there for fellows at a given time? For this upcoming recruiting cycle, we are looking to recruit 30 to 35 fellows. 
All right. We're speaking with Rebecca Lamadrid. She is the new director of the Presidential Innovation Fellows Program, which is operated by the General Services Administration. And talk about the process for, you say, recruiting. How do people find out about this program? What does it take to become a fellow? Getting to become a fellow, we take that effort in a two-pronged approach. So on one side, we recruit really bright and talented individuals. And we also, on another side, source challenges by actively listening to agencies and identify where these fellows can truly make a difference. When we recruit the fellows, it's a quite rigorous process. And many of the fellows we select have applied several years before even getting selected. It's really competitive. We receive over a thousand applications every recruiting cycle. Another thing that is important for me to point out to you, Tom, is that our processes have a strong focus on diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility aligning to the administration's priorities. An example of how this plays out is that we, for example, blind resumes before sending them to agencies. We also make questions available ahead of time. So the interviews are not only about being a great interviewer, but instead we want to truly identify subject matter experts. Another idea of our DEIA efforts is that we target outreach to underrepresented communities, and that helps us ensure that we're bringing in talent that represents the American public. We open recruitment for fellows every year, and this year applications are open for mid-May, and they go all the way through the end of June. And while we're doing all of that, on the fellow recruitment side, on the agency side, we're also actively working to source and define opportunities for fellows to truly make an impact. Do you ever go to companies and say, hey, we've got these opportunities. Do you know anyone that's really smart in your company that might want to apply? You know, more than going to companies, we go to communities. We, of course, talk to alumni and certainly tag into people that we know and even make efforts to be in front of, as I mentioned, these communities where we can source the talent. And let me ask you this, too, because GSA operates its own kind of innovative in-house group called 18F, and then there's the U.S. Digital Service, and U.S. Digital Service itself is replicated in a lot of the large agencies, I think in DOD and VA come to mind. How do the fellows interact with those structures which could be employees coming from a different vector or even permanent employees? Fantastic question, Tom. All of these interactions allow for these programs and groups to create a community of innovation that is, you know, across government. And they get to share best practices and, you know, not necessarily reinvent the wheel. You know, there's a lot of sharing and forming of this community that is really fantastic within government. All right. And how did you get to this spot? You are fairly new to GSA yourself, correct? That is right. I'm new. I am seven weeks in, and I couldn't be more excited to be leading this program. I come to this position from the nonprofit world, where I have more than 15 years of experience in program management, talent development, and I've spent a number of years as an executive leader. So what's it like on the inside? 
It is different, I must say, quite complex, but at the same time, fascinating. The group of people that I get to spend my days with are really committed public servants, and it's truly an honor to be part of this fantastic mission. Rebecca Lamadrid is director of the Presidential Innovation Fellows Program at the General Services Administration. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Applications will open in mid-May. They'll be open through June. And if your agency is interested in hosting, we'll have the link to that and to the application process at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, So that was probably the the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style 
And how has that developed over the years? I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often 
oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week. So patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com.